This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. We begin our 2024 candidate coverage this week with Christiana DeLeon. She currently serves as a council member for the city of Black Diamond, and she is running for state representative in the 5th Legislative District. Christiana, hello, my friend. How are you? Hello, my friend. It's so good to connect with you in this way. This is really, really exciting to get to do this. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk more about the things that keep me going and keep me even waking up early, which is on policy. Okay, good. Well, everybody needs a reason to get out of bed in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Yes. So I kind of want to start here. I've known this uh, little factoid about you for a while, but I'm hoping you can share. So I know that you were inspired to get involved uh, with politics when you met Senator Patty Murray when you were, what, 12 or 13 years old? Is that right? Yes, yes. When I was 12. Um, So I can tell a little bit about that backstory. And actually, in getting ready for this interview, this is so early 2000s, by the way. Um, but I have this great book cover where I covered this book she's in called Nine and Counting, The Women of the United States Senate, because at the time of it's being published, she was one of the nine women in the Senate. And it's so sweet. Like she even has this note that she wrote to me um, that says, may you one day be in this book. Um, so I had this really great opportunity um, when I was younger to get the scholarship where I went to um, Washington, D.C., and I got to meet her in her office in Olympia and and just learn more about the Senate and her work and you know, just get to meet one of those childhood heroes in person. And I know usually they say, don't meet your heroes in real life, but it was just a wonderful experience. And she's continued to inspire the kind of work um, that I'm doing. And really a lot of the reverberating effects of that meeting and just those kinds of notes incur- includes the fact that this has continued to guide how I see political work and organizing and all of that, which is that I had my Patty Murray. I want more of us to have our Patty Murrays. You know, I want more of us to be able to see ourselves in government and doing this work. So this idea back in the 90s that she's, you know, the just a woman in tennis shoes or just the mom in tennis shoes who ended up running to serve in one of these high offices is to me a really powerful testament that the more of us who are able to see ourselves in government, the better things go for all of us. So it continues to kind of fuel that. And I'll just put in a shout out too that Another really big instrumental person who continued to inspire and inform my work was um, one of her colleagues, too, at the time, um, which was Senator Paul Wellstone and his work on um, advocacy Mm -hmm. and grassroots organizing um, and his sudden and tragic loss really actually made a dent um, in um, a really it, it, it affected me deeply, including when I was a teenager. So that's that's a lot of the groundwork for how I'm kind of getting to where I am today. I'm quite a bit older than you are, but I certainly <laughs> remember uh, uh, Senator Wellstone uh, very, very well. And I, I think, you know, having a North Star like that is so important. And, and, and indeed, you know, running for office, we are told over and over again in our advocacy work with Indivisible is really just one of the most important things that one can do. You know, um, speaking of your relative youth, you mentioned on your website that you are in your mid 30s. Uh, this, of course, is decidedly younger than your average legislator in uh, Olympia. Talk about how you feel that you your age informs your political perspective. Definitely. You know, and this this is part and parcel of what it means to have your um, Senator Murray is, of course, it is really important for younger people to keep getting involved. And we hear that moniker a lot. We hear that encouragement. But what does it look like? So for me, I you know, I'm in my mid 30s, but I still get to call myself a young Democrat with the membership, which is great. Um, And I do think a lot about what it means to be decisively no way around it. I am a millennial in a lot of ways, a stereotypical millennial. Like we chose our house in part because of a dog. 
right? <laughs> like all these kinds of things, but also thinking about what it means to be graduating into a series of really terrible economies. You know, I graduated into the recession. We're still in a lot of ways, people my age and younger are really struggling with the fact that there is growing income inequality. And for us, it's beginning to ring really hollow of this idea of waiting your turn when we know that this immediacy is now. And for me, especially, it's not an abstract concept that like we are trying to do everything right, play in, you know, kind of play and perform in the system. And it's still like the math is not mathing for a lot of the things that we desperately need when it comes to actually affordable and attainable housing, when it comes to our education opportunities, when it comes to transit. You know, we do have a different perspective on the role of, say, what public transportation can mean in our in our kinds of cities, right? And mental health in our ongoing conversations. I do also still have a lot of sympathy, empathy, solidarity with older folks who graduated in or graduated, retired, different kind of graduated into um, a kind of a world that wasn't what they planned for in retirement, you know, and especially when we talk about I'm being priced out of my home, it's something that resonates with me because we're just on the bookends of that same experience. But still, shout out to Gen X. We don't forget you. We love you. Everybody forgets Gen X, damn it. Uh, <laughs> so th thank you. I appreciate that. And I do want to uh, get into policy in a meaningful yeah. way in just a second. And and certainly, you know, younger voices, younger perspective, uh, very much needed uh, in Olympia. I do want to take a moment and talk about some of the work that you have already done in elected office. So as I mentioned, you are a sitting city council member in Black Diamond, which is largely a very red city. What if you could talk a little bit about winning and then really serving the needs of your constituents in a, in a place like Black Diamond? Yeah. So and that's what's really, really wild is I first ran um, for office in 2019, obviously in the midst of a lot of really um, challenging times. And of course, with 2020 looming, um, soon to be realized even more challenging uh, times on the horizon. And it's really meant that I think a lot about what it means to be talked about reaching across party lines. You know, we, we use that term a lot in a way that almost kind of rings hollow. And especially because we do have so many deep divides on a lot of our of a lot of our values. I do think there's a lot of shared values, though, truly. And this is something that I have been really working to navigate during my time as council member, which really boils down to a few different things. For one, it's that it's really, really important that we still show up for ourselves and our values and hold true to them. Because what I will say is regardless of your, you know, your party affiliation or your views or anything like that, I will say that regardless the fact that like people know when you're being authentic and people know when this is actually what you truly believe. And there is respect that comes with the fact that I know where you're coming from, you know where I'm coming from. And that actually can produce some really, really, really good and meaningful dialogue. And with that, it's still important to set boundaries. You know, for me, I know where I'm coming from and I don't compromise on my values. I'm so very willing though, to talk about what it means to compromise on policy in a way that still reflects values. To that end, though, with boundaries, I think about where do we not, you know, where do we draw the line? Where do we make sure that we're still holding true to what matters most? And for me, that's talking especially about um, the very real issues that are related to our environment and especially on basic human rights. And especially when it comes to civil rights um, and the rights of LGBTQ plus people to simply exist authentically. So for me, it, how we navigate that is a conversation on authenticity and not backing away from hard conversations. That's the only way that things can really get done. 
So show up for your values, be willing to compromise on policy, but really set your bedrock, uh, you know, boundaries, as you say. I wonder, in what ways do you see Black Diamond as, as representative? You're running in the 5th LD. Do you see Black Diamond as being representative of the 5th LD at large? In a lot of ways, yes. And that's also what's informed um, my own decisions to also get involved in this race and run for this office and why people in the surrounding south end of my legislative district were, you know, community leaders, organizers, PCOs, you name it, were really, really um, encouraging me to run is because of the perspective that cities like Black Diamond can bring not only to our full LD, um, but really to the state as a whole. I think in a lot of ways, Black Diamond is truly representative of far more of the state than we give it credit for. For example, we are growing exponentially. Like when I took office, we were, I think, somewhere around like 5,000 people. Now we're going to be growing many folds, like over 20,000, 25,000 in a short handful of years, right? And with that comes a an, an huge strain on our resources, a lot of really rapid fire decision making, and a lot of really quick decisions that um, will have ripple effects for generations to come. So, you know, it's it's really a lot to, to, to wrap your head around, but it's also where I think about how our state is continuing to welcome in new folks. And it is about how we talk about when we're expanding into urban growth boundaries and how we're continuing to build for our future. I think about, again, cities like mine that are in a lot of ways kind of being given unfunded mandates to provide necessary services to our residents without necessarily having um, the full financial means to do so. Even though we have the money in the state, and in a lot of ways we still have the economic will, how do we bring along cities that are growing that are suddenly having to kind of grow up really fast um, and sort of become bigger cities far far before a lot of our, our residents were really knowing or mentally, economically, emotionally prepared for? That is the story of a lot of parts of our state is rapid change. And how do we meet that moment in a way that really speaks to how we bring everybody along and make everyone feel like they truly belong in this community and feel welcome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as our urban centers become uh, more and more affordable and more and more people are treating uh, areas like Black Diamond as bedroom communities, uh, these sorts of issues are, are really uh, quite ascendant, uh, as you say. I will mention for people who may not know that you ran against and defeated an active member of a hate group when you uh, won your office. Tell us about that. Yes. And this really goes back to some of the earlier conversation we had, too, about how we work and serve in a community um, that is historically pretty conservative, even if that's changing. Um, you know, we, we have to meet that. Right. And I think this is where we even look forward to 2024. And we're thinking about what it means to have engage in authentic policy when we actually get to talk about policy. But again, where do we stay true to our values? So Way back when in 2019, um, you know, I was still working as a public school teacher and long story short, decided to change career paths and run for city council. And a lot of it was because, again, speaking about meeting the moment, there was such an uptick in like hate speech and increases in hate groups organizing and mobilizing, especially in the state. Like Washington state does not get enough credit um, for really bad things that we don't want to see continuing in the state, like far right militias. Um, but I just chose to run kind of in this sort of Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of a mindset of I'm going to run and serve in my community. We'll have great productive debates. We won't agree on everything. But isn't that great that we're going to have a choice on the ballot and that we'll be able to have authentic dialogue? Like 
I'm still kind of Pollyanna that way. I still think that can really happen. But, you know, after I chose to run, after I filed, like a week or so after, I was told by somebody who was um, very supportive of me, they said, have you, have you checked out who you're running against? I'm like, well, yeah, I, I met him. Like, I think he's kind of more conservative than I am, but what, what's up? And they showed me, it's like, he's actually like a leader in the Washington 3%. And like any hate group, they deny that they're a hate group, but like they are. Um, and to me, that was like such a wake up call that first there was somebody in my community who was claiming to represent all of us, but was actually doing this on behalf of an organization that was truly trying to gain political power and, and build the benches at all levels of government. This is a group that was saying all the things that we later heard come out in the insurrection about building gallows for elected officials, about um, disparaging comments about like Islam, about all of these other, you know, anti-LGBT rhetoric, like all of these really scary things. And it's like, we can't have people claiming to represent us when they're clearly organizing to hurt all of us, right? So for me, it was a matter of then, well, I have to win. And I'm going to win on values and I'm going to win on policy. And I'm going to win on the collective organizing of everybody else in this area who knows that this is just not only what we don't want, but what do we, what are we for? And that's where I think we can really continue to meet the moment. Also in this election cycle, when I really think about how do we motivate people to get involved? I think it's about giving a giving a really exciting and empowering choice for really how can we lead in our best foot forward, knowing that we could have really, really bad options out there. You know, we, we have to do better than thinking it's a low bar and how do we not trip over it, but how do we raise the bar? And I still think a lot of times, like more ways that I can continue to kind of try to raise that bar, that's, an, you know, going off of cliches, that, that's a heavy lift but it's so important. And I just see a cat on the screen. That's so excited. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's cat. Uh, we're, we're doing this via zoom I, for I'm those sorry, who can't like... see where, where, where cat is. She, she actually is holding uh, her cat. You know, it's, it really is an extraordinary story, Christiana. And I think it certainly underscores your commitment to your community. And it is my understanding that you plan on continuing to serve on the city council, even if elected to serve in Olympia, right? Yeah. I mean, does that mean I'm a little bit nuts? Yes. I mean, clearly. And I mean, for one, I used to teach middle school. So that already says a little bit about where I'm at. There you go. Um, but yes, I do. I do plan to. And it's for a variety of reasons. First off, I can like legally so far. That's that's possible um, because people ask that. But more importantly than like just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think I should for a few different reasons. For one, it's the earlier things I was thinking I was mentioning earlier with my city really being at such a crucial growing point. We've had a lot of turnover on council. Um, it's really important that in cities like mine and like my city in particular, we're recognizing that we are at such a crux of what we need to be doing um, when it comes to our funding, when it comes to zoning, when it comes to, frankly, our fire services and some of our school levies, there are things that still need um, some TLC. And especially because now I've been in for now my second term, I think it's really important to, to keep that commitment to my, my city and my residents. But even more, thinking about that bigger picture, it's the fact that cities like mine throughout the LD, but you know, we, we need that kind of representation. And I want to be able to keep my ears to the ground on the kinds of questions and policy ideas that people have when it comes to where are we meeting an impact when it comes to say missing middle housing? What does it look like, for example, on transit oriented development? Like I was in the committee meeting yesterday for it, hoping to testify um, on talking about 
how it's a yes and. And sometimes it's that and that cities like mine need to fill. Like, what does it mean when we build more housing, for example, um, you know, in areas where we're supposed to have a bus line, but we don't? You know, and those are the kinds of questions that I want to keep raising um, on that level. But of course, that needs to be constant conversation at the local level in order to really make that authentically meaningful. I, this is a perfect transition into some of your policy positions. Um, you, you mentioned a couple times uh, that you uh, were a teacher. So you obviously very much prioritize education. You would like to see the way that our schools are currently funded. You are not alone uh, with, you know, it's with an over-reliance on things like property tax, bonds, levies. Ideally, how do you think we should be funding our schools? Yeah, I mean, across the board, Schools and not schools, because I'm, I'm, I love the city work, obviously, and that side of it. But regardless of whether we're funding our cities or um, how we're funding our fire departments or how we're funding our schools, our tax system in Washington state is frankly asked backwards. You know, and I know we're trying to get that a little bit more, um, you know, rectified now. I think we're 49th in the nation as opposed to number. Yes, we just got displaced. Thank yeah. Florida. Exactly. Florida, Florida man <laughs> makes for worse tax policy. But, you know, when I'm looking at it like. Um, you know, our over-reliance on property taxes. For one, I think this is a common grounds issue that we can have with older, you know, a younger person with older residents who are saying, you know, my my property taxes are getting unaffordable for me, slash um, the fact that we are requiring, um, you know, our schools and other basic functions to be begging for pennies of property taxes. When, again, we have the economic means to do better in the state. We have some of the wealthiest individuals. We have some of the record profit-making companies, like worldwide companies that are relying on a good public education system um, to be able to really function and, and thrive. But what we're doing is we're, we're not actually letting our students and staff thrive. And so I do think about how we move away from property taxes. Again, as a for former educator, I also think about you know, I worked in a district where people said, we moved here for the schools, which is great. I mean, okay. But then our levy failed. Like, why are you moving for the schools if you're not paying for them? And my job was on the chopping block. And that's demoralizing. That's demoralizing for staff. That's demoralizing for students. It means we had tech fritzing out and you have 38th graders going, cool, no school because it's not working. You know, it's it's such a disaster. And that's before we even get into the lack of counseling and the lack of um, paraprofessionals and the lack of, you know, school lunch and debt reduction or just not having school lunch debt, you know, and all of these things that we're not paying for and we're we're ending up paying for in other ways, right? So I'd like to see us have a transition away from relying on property taxes and trying to create more of a sense of your wealth was created, your extreme wealth was created on people who are going to work. And I think especially of, you know, families of students where they were in the fulfillment centers working the night shift and I couldn't get in contact with those families because they were sleeping or working. Um, but yet we need to provide it. So maybe the people making them work in the middle of the night should be paying their fair share. You know, you just touched on some of the ways in which school administration comes up uh, short, in your opinion. On your site, you actually say the call for change reverberates beyond the simplistic notion that we just need to pay teachers more. I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit more because you ticked off some of the, the you know, the, the areas that, that uh, were top of mind for you. Well, what are some of the other areas where you feel that our schools are coming up short? And really, from a legislative standpoint, what can be done here? Sure. I mean, all of this isn't an overnight fix. And it's obviously some of these changes are going to have to be 
um, dealt with far beyond anyone's um, terms in the office. You know, and I feel like it's, especially we're doing a lot of piecemeal because first off, you have to do that. I mean, I get it. But also the fact that I, I don't know if we're really thinking about how we plant those seeds so that the tree grows. We, we talk about that in education, but how does that also align with our policies? So I really think about first and foremost, you know, education is paramount duty first and foremost for me. And first and foremost of that is not only an overhaul of our tax system, but an overhaul of the system um, in general. This is a 19th century um, model that's kind of becoming one size fits no one in a lot of ways. And a lot of people are falling through the cracks. They have before, and I think now, and especially after COVID, we're continuing to see that reverberating effect of how we have this kind of bell schedule. We have funding tied to seat time. We have all of these different things. But then also makes me think about um, how do we do an overhaul on the leadership? Because, you know, uh, for me personally, you know, when we say we need to pay teachers more, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do this for another year. Like that's kind of where I kind of ended up being that burned out teacher and, and wow. throwing in the towel. And it's because of the lack of meaningful um, support, even with the best administrative help, there's just not enough of that kind of school leadership. And I know that admins are struggling to really keep, keep up with the, the pressure and the demands of like the students who need the tier one intervention versus the, the teachers who need the professional development versus the, you know, the, the, the community members and the public who, have all sorts of opinions. And it's it's becoming really difficult for any one of us to be able to wear all the hats that anyone in education is needing to do um, in a really meaningful way. And, and, you know, case in point, we do need support for, you know, counselors, bus drivers, paraeducators. And a lot of times we're leaving that out, but because we're also putting that burden directly back on them when it comes to training, when it comes to how we recruit and retain which we're not doing very well on, but we're not, I feel like doing that same due diligence on school leadership. How do we make sure that we have admin programs, training, retention, accountability measures, et cetera, um, that really help with that top-down leadership? Again, I think greater overhauls are necessary. We can't have this industrial model anymore work, but I do think that that's going to be a net benefit for everyone from um, the top of leadership outwards to everybody who's providing essential services or our essential service, which is public schools. Let's shift gears and talk about climate and and gas prices, um, because you've said that uh, you understand that people in the fifth are concerned about rising gas and energy prices. And you've also pointed out something that we all see that oil corporations are making record profits. How do you think we put the blame where it belongs in a way that, that, that sticks? And then really, what further measures would you like to see that would hold corporations responsible here? Yeah, I mean, this is where I talk about how accountability is for everyone. And again, I want to shift that burden of blame, um, you know, away from private consumers, just like I don't want, you know, it, it ends up also feeling like thinking about education, it feels like victim blaming to keep putting the burden of more training on teachers. So thinking also about, I'm a younger person, I'm a millennial, I grew up here, and I know what it was like to have a summer season that didn't include a smoke in forest fire season, right? Like that's, that's, very relevant um, to this conversation. And so I really think about, for one, when we talk about leading in a way that inspires others to lead, we need to make sure that we are empowering all of our residents to be able to make more, um, you know, meaningful input on climate action. For example, while I'm cap and trade is difficult, right? There's a lot of um, really nuanced policies in it. But what really upset me, for example, with the Climate Commitment Act and some of the fallout was um, for example, when government, uh, Governor Jay Inslee um, vetoed the provisions that would have empowered the tribes to be able to do more of 
um, their work in providing consultation with the tribes on climate legislation. I, I felt like that was a huge step backwards um, because then at the same time, we're still subsidizing major polluters who are not only just like we're not we're not talking about consultation, but they're kind of being allowed to get away with the kinds of harmful decisions that impact everyday consumers. You sure. know, and, and this is where I think about, for example, the gas tax. When I first started working, um, you know, as a council member and running for office, I switched gears to work retail. Right. Um, and this is when then I'm working alongside coworkers who are, you know, driving beaters to work or who have to take time off of work to make sure that their apartments didn't flood due to, you know, um, more extreme weather patterns. And I think about then why are we continuing to put that burden or that onus of responsibility on people who are making, you know, lower wage jobs in order to then again, we're letting we're, we're, we're letting these large companies, these polluters, the people who aren't doing enough to also raise efficiency standards, we're, we're kind of we're literally letting them get away with murder. And our tax policy is exemplifying what we're subsidizing, like polluters. I'm glad to see more work in this legislative session addressing this. We need to do more of it, but we need to just wean ourselves off from the gas tax. Also, at the end of the day, gas is a finite resource, and it's not sustainable to put all of our funding for our cities and our roads, et cetera, on a finite resource that people are trying to use less of. Let's encourage consumers to be able to use less, but also do it by making sure that top polluters do pay more of their fair share and that we put limitations on them raising that cost. Um, I'm I'm very mad. Okay, huge, somewhat sidebar, but I'm very mad with Puget Sound Energy's whole thing about we have to conserve energy, for example, as if, you know, yes, we need personal responsibility, but how are we talking about the fact that a lot of people are really, really struggling and we could have done more yesterday to get more sustainable energy models? I want to also touch on public safety, and this is related to something you just said, which is accountability is for everyone. You say on your site, when someone hurts another, there need to be consequences, and those consequences need to make sure that people who do harm are set on an upward spiral and don't continue to make the same bad choices. Tell us what you mean by that and what that looks like in practice. Sure. Um, I'll start, I guess, by talking about what it isn't or shouldn't be a lot of and what it should be more of. You know, I, I think about how a lot of the really damaging rhetoric that we're seeing right now and probably going to see for the rest of 2024 is um, really very simplistic and kind of fear mongering rhetoric around pursuits laws um, the, and this kind of emphasis on these sort of made for TV moments that somehow are going to be the end all be all fix all of all crime in Washington state. And obviously, I think all of us know that that's not realistic. And in fact, in a lot of cases, pursuit, for example, is very dangerous to bystanders and innocent people. And it's this high octane situ situation that could get not only bystanders kills, but all killed, but also law enforcement and even, you know, suspects, um, et cetera. It's really deadly. So then how do we also think about what do we want instead? So yes, I agree on accountability. If somebody hurts someone, whether it's a white collar crime and scam, whether it is, you know, a robbery or whether it is violent crime, of course, we need to have legal options that hold people accountable, right? Like they're, they're, that is not a question up for debate. And how do we do enough of our due diligence to make sure that we don't get to that level? When I think about first responders, I actually think about our community as being first responders. And I mean that in the sense of what are we doing to prevent crime from happening in the first place? We have not done our due diligence enough on this. So when I think about upward spirals, 
I think about things like what's well, sort of a mid-tier to the upward spiral, spiral, but things like community courts, therapeutic courts, those kinds of intervention me methods that sort of interrupt that downward spiral or that recidivism before it really takes root and hurts not only that person, but their whole surrounding family, friends, and the greater community. So like in my city, I was advocating and successfully advocated for on um, the pilot program of and then continuation of our own therapeutic courts. Um, it's so far gotten a lot of really good success. It's really promising. And considering how much we are continuing to otherwise fund the same patterns that are still not getting the results we want, like we're still seeing a lot of crime, we're still seeing a lot of really harmful behavior. Let's make sure that we're trying to just invest in the people as people and not always just only by the crime that they have done. So also when I think of public safety, I do think about how are we making sure it is prevented in terms of affordable housing, in terms of education and opportunity, in terms of recreation centers that aren't major pay-to-play opportunities for youth? Because especially in my south end of the district and, you know, again, being a former educator, students would talk about the fact that there's not really a good place to hang out that's like not a really expensive supervised activity. So a lot of people hang out like in parking lots or not do things that are necessarily really productive or even fun. Um, and that's where a lot of really um, negative things happen. So I do think that when we talk about public safety, it absolutely needs to be more holistic. It, am I Pollyanna, you know, to think that we don't need a response to actual crime and actual harm? No, like we still need to address it. It's again, that yes and. How and how do we make sure that we're really being those first responders taking care of ourselves before we even have to call the actual first responders to show up. Before I let you go, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about something. Um, you just testified on behalf of a Senate bill that would address clergy's obligation to report child abuse or neglect. Uh, it's my understanding this is a rewrite of a bill from last session. Tell us what the law currently stipulates and then what you're advocating for. Sure. So, Long story short, um, I got my involvement in this work because there are a few different organizations that are kind of an extension of my work with policy. Um, one is on youth mental health in our local community in the Enumclaw School District, and another one um, is with uh, the Association of Secular Elected Officials. So quick quick shout out there, it is a nonprofit 501c3 um, nationwide. And if you are any elected official from, you know, fire commission, and school board on up to federal level, we'd love to have you. It's a policy hub um, and also an advocacy piece. So through that work with ASCO, um, I was able to learn that our state actually does not have any requirements. We're like, I think now one of five states in the nation um, that doesn't include clergy as mandated reporters. And for me, again, public educator hat or former public educator hat, Mandated reporting actually is really, really important. You know, you can say a lot of meaningful things about some of still the inherent flaws in some of those systems, but at the end of the day, child welfare is crucial. And especially when we think about the fact that not every kid attends a public school, you know, and some people are in a very enclosed religious environment. And how do we make sure that those children, um, those youth, those vulnerable people are still getting the support that they need? So. Um, this was some ongoing advocacy work last year um, that was supposed to not only, um, you know, make sure that clergy are, are um, mandated reporters, but also that we would close some very obvious loopholes that um, are, you know, 
essentially the seal of confession or confession-like practices where people can disclose that they harmed another or a child says, I thought I sinned, but it turns out they were being abused. We wanted to close that. Um, this ended up being a huge point of contention last year, um, which was really, really upsetting. However, the really good news is, um, is that one of the prime sponsors and the prime sponsor for this legislation, Senator Noel Frame, um, really did some amazing due diligence in the interim to work with various stakeholders, including the um, Catholic Conference Bishops Lobby in Washington State and stakeholders like myself and other survivors um, to also make or and survivors to make sure that we were actually going to come to an agreement that was at least workable. So it looks like there's some really promise now. I was able to testify early morning um, when I was already in Olympia for a future wise lobby day um, and be able to say, yes, it's it's a pro with caveats. So I will also give a shout out that um, if you're looking to support some really good um, legislation, please give a supportive comment for Senate Bill 6298 on um, on clergy penitent privilege and on making sure that clergy are also just added as mandated reporters. So we're all more, the more eyes we have looking out for kids, the better. Um, so anyway, also it's really great. And it's a really great opportunity to just plug. It's really meaningful for me to also be running as an openly secular elected official. Like I'm an atheist, I'm a humanist, and we all come to their table with different lenses and perspectives for me knowing that I'm a humanist and I think, you know, this is the one life I know exists and we have to make it a meaningful, as meaningful and good quality of life for as many people as possible. That's what continues to ground and guide my work. Yeah, I, I absolutely know how much that informs what you do. And uh, I very much appreciate that. Uh, I will mention again for people that the bill that you just mentioned is Senate Bill 6298. And we will have a link for that in the show notes. So how can people learn more about your campaign? Yes. Um, please get involved like and really and truly i do mean that this campaign started from community and i want it to keep being built and fueled by community so any way that you are participating means the world um so my campaign website is christiana deleon.com k-r-i-s-t-i-a-n-a deleon d-e-l-e-o-n.com there's a sneaky a in there um but also all of my uh social media handles are kdl for ld5 um, and that's for like F-O-R, not like the number four, because then it would look like a license plate. So there you go. Find, uh, follow me on the socials, um, look on the website, and of course, you know, sign up to volunteer, chip in, make a contribution, it all matters. And I would absolutely love to hear from you too. Christiana DeLeon, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much. And again, I hope you're all doing well. And I'm really glad we got to see a cat in the Zoom meeting. So it, it's been a really, really cool opportunity. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisiblepodcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.